Now, Father, we come to you as a congregation because we, well, we desperately need you. This world needs you. You promise to be a father who gives us good gifts to be our protector, our priest, our king, our prophet. And this world is filled with evil and grief and pain and suffering. And we don't want to be a people that avoid that or turn a blind eye to it. We want to recognize fully and finally that this world is broken, but it's also not our home. But as you say in your Psalms, uh, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And so we beg you, Father, to do the works of kindness and love and mercy for people in this world. We beg you to bring revival to us and to this world. And we beg you to help us in our time of need. We beg you to be with the church in Ukraine and Kenya and North Korea and China and the church here. We beg you to show us Jesus again, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and And Father, we would beseech again you to remind us of the mercies of who Christ is, that he has bought with his blood the indispensable riches of the gospel of grace. And we would ask that you would set our minds firmly on his return again. We're uh, weary in doing good. Uh, We're tired of thinking about vengeance and taking it into our own hands. And we need you, Jesus. What's so much better for our lives is for you to be the ruler and the reigner of the new heavens and the new earth. And we pray that that would happen quickly and soon. And until that time, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would comfort the afflicted. uh, Convict the apathetic. Uh, Come alongside like you, the paraclete, would. Come alongside and call out people to follow and to know you. Make us be a people who uh, live in step with you, Spirit. That we live beneath the cross of Jesus. That we live corem deo. That we live in your presence. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do the work that we can't do in our own hearts that you would point us again this morning and this week as we worship you to the sufficiency and the fullness of Christ and his love for us. May our little hearts that are so prone towards anxiety and fear, may our hearts that are way too small, would we believe the largeness of the gospel of Christ again today? And when we leave this place, would we go singing your praise still on our lips? We pray in your name. Amen. We are reading through the Bible, as it's already been mentioned, and we're in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, Let me get you up to speed a little bit. Miriam has died, 
Aaron has died, and the priestly nature has been passed over to his son. Uh, we got through Numbers, which basically means in Hebrew, a book of wandering. They were right up to the edge of the promised land, and then their disobedience kept them from going in. They didn't trust that the Lord was going to be good to them. So ten of the spies convinced the rest of the group uh, that it wasn't worth it, that they were all going to die in that land. Except for Joshua and Caleb, they were the ones that were faithful. They believed that God could do what God has promised to do. But as a result, they had to wander because of their disobedience. And because of that disobedience, Moses was going to die in the wilderness, never to go into the promised land, seeing it only from the mountain. And then we get to Deuteronomy. Now, Deuteronomy means uh, second giving of the law. Deutero, number two, nomos means law. So it's the second giving of the law. And so it's kind of structured around, I need to tell you about the law again. We see the Ten Commandments first in Exodus chapter 20, but we see them a second time in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Now, I'm not going to preach on the Ten Commandments today. I'm actually going to preach on Deuteronomy 6, what we call this law of life, this great Shema. And it's a law of life because this law will save you from the two things that cause your spiritual death and demise. There's more than that. But typically, there's two things that will call your spiritual death and demise. The first one is this, compartmentalization. We'll talk through that. And the second one is this, complacency. And this is a law that will lead you to life because it wants to put to death in you the compartmentalization and the complacency that sometimes comes with the Christian faith. So let's start with this first point. The gospel permeates your compartmentalization. Let me read verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You should talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. This is what uh, scholars call, what people, Hebrews call, the Shema. Now, Shema is a Hebrew word that basically means hear or listen. And it has two parts to it. Because there's a hearing and there's a listening part, but there's also a doing part that comes with the Shema. You You ask your kids to unload the dishwasher, right? And and they did not do it. What do you say? Did you hear what I said to you? You know, because the hearing has a doing function. The coach comes into the halftime. He says, listen up, everybody. He's not not just going to give you a speech. There's something he wants you to do from the instruction he's going to give to you. You might say to somebody when you're in an intense conversation with them, are you listening to me? Because you're not doing the things that I think you should be doing. So the Shema is listening and doing. The Hebrew people would read the Shema every morning, uh, every evening, and then right before they go to bed. And the Shema is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, this part that I read. And then it's also Deuteronomy chapter 15, or 
chapter 11, I'm sorry, and Numbers chapter 15. The blessing and the curses, and then the reminder of what God has done with them. And the first thing that he says in this Shema is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Now that is so incredibly important, because basically it's saying, you Christian people, you're monotheists, you worship one God. Here, your Lord, the Lord is one. We know the Trinity, one God, three persons. We can talk about that more later. But here, he's trying to set them apart from the land that they're going to go into. See, the promised land, they're polytheists. They're not monotheists. So he's saying, you're going to go into that land, but your identity is you're a monotheist. One God, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The way religion worked for everybody in this world except... For the Christians, except for the Christ followers, the Savior followers, uh, the Hebrews, the ones who worshiped Yahweh, was they would place multiple bets on multiple gods. So you'd have all of these gods in the land, and you would place bets on all of them, hoping that this god would come through, or this god would come through. And you had to placate all of them, and you had to keep them all happy. It was much like playing politics. Well, here the Shema says, no, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. In other words... I want you, if you're going to follow me, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, I want you to push all of your chips across the table and bet on Yahweh. Don't spread your bet around. Don't bet on this God, the God of fertility. Don't bet on this God, the God of idolatry. Don't bet on this guy. You, do, you can't spread it out. You've got to push all of your chips and you've got to bet on Yahweh. That's who you are in this covenant. And then look at what he says after that. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your might. Now the word heart here, we associate with uh, love. But that's not how the Hebrews thought of it. Heart here actually meant will, or it meant your whole being. Um, Actually, they did associate love in Hebrew language, but it was associated with kidneys. Whether you knew that or not is not important, but it doesn't have the same ring in English. You know, if if you sit across your girlfriend's uh, porch and you say to her, I I love you with all of my kidneys, she she won't know what to do with that. So heart for us is established in the emotional realm. For the Hebrews, it was established in the realm of the will. I love you with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my might, or with all my strength. In other words, God doesn't want you to compartmentalize your life. He wants all of who you are. And then in Matthew chapter 22, you remember the uh, lawyers. He had defeated the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So they got some lawyers to cross-examine Jesus and see if they could trip him up. What is the greatest commandment in all of the law? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind, uh, understanding that he needed to kind of transpose for the Greeks what they needed to hear, all of who they were. The life of the mind was larger for the Greeks, at least at that time. And then he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, there's the doing component. It isn't just loving the Lord in this emotional way. It's now love that person who's beside you whose tire blew out on 85. Love that person across the street who just lost their parents. Love that person across the lunchroom table who doesn't have anybody to sit with. 
Like love your neighbor. There's an outworking of listening, but now also doing. Now, this is important, and I know the first half of this is we're going to get a little bit more to applying it to your heart. Don't worry about that. I know the first half of this is a little bit academic, but we, we need to do this work. Because if we don't do it here, you might not get it. I told you a couple of weeks ago that there are three types of the law. There is the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. And we talked about those differences. Well, why can you go out to Sobeys and have shrimp and grits when the Old Testament says don't eat shrimp? Because that's part of the ceremonial law, and that has now been abolished, fulfilled by the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. The civil law in principle, and the moral law is the Ten Commandments. So there's three types of law. But here's what's important. You need to know this. There's also three uses of the law. And I think these will be on the screen. The three uses of the law is this. Number one, to convict us of sin. Number two, to lead us to Christ. And number three, it's useful for daily living. So when you read the Ten Commandments, the first thing it should do is to convict you of your sin. You might read the Ten Commandments and you, you might be tempted to say, but I've never committed adultery. But that's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, even if you've looked at somebody lustful in your heart, you've done it. The, the purpose of the law is meant to convict us of our sin. To say, we can't do this. We can't keep it. And then to point us to the Redeemer Christ. And then the third use of the law is, it's still useful for daily living. It's still good to not lie. It's still good to honor your father and your mother. But you have to do that with the strength that Christ gives you. Now, let's, just, let's say you're not a believer yet, but you're visiting, you're watching online, you're doing it. And, and you might be tempted to say this, because this is what most people will, will say. Well, Andy, I don't have to live under the law of God. I can keep my own. I have my own kind of moral structure. I have my own law. I don't need God's law imposed upon me. I mean, it's kind of weird and all these Ten Commandments. I'm not sure I agree with all that. Do they even apply today? I, when I get to heaven, I'm going to tell God that I have lived the way I need to live so he should let me into heaven. Francis Schaeffer, uh, the wonderful Francis Schaeffer, who um, should not be forgotten his role in this world. But Francis Schaeffer said, if you're in that category, think of it this way. Think of it that you have a little recorder around your neck, a little tape recorder. And it's been there your entire life. <laughs> and it turns on and starts recording every time that you say, I should... It starts turning on. Or I will. Or they should. Or they will. And what Schaefer says, I, I have never had a, um, an atheist argue this point with me as many times as I've brought it up in conversation. What Schaefer says is this. When you get to the new heavens, when you get to that place where you have to give an account before God who sees everything, and you say, look, I, I've lived a good life for me. You know, I, I did the best with what I could. You should let me in for that. All he has to do is say, can we play back all the times that you said you should do something or you would do something or you will do something? And your own words, your own standards will convict you. God doesn't even have to convict you with his law. Your own words will convict you. 
And so the purpose of the law, the Ten Commandments, the Shema, is meant to convict us of our sin, to, to kind of break us down, and then to lead us to Christ because Christ gives us life. And so this law is something that, that permeates us. That's why it says, look at what it says, verse 6, And these words I command to you today, teach them diligently to your children, talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise... In other words, let God's word permeate you. The best conversation I ever had with my kids about Jesus, and we've had a lot of conversations about the Lord, not all have been great ones. But the best ones are the natural ones. When uh, one of my kids was seven and struggling with some peers at school, And we had to get some energy out, so we went out on the trampoline, and we just jumped until we couldn't jump anymore, and we ended up laying down on the trampoline, watching these leaves fall. And I said, you know what? It's amazing that God makes all of these leaves and makes them all individual. And little child, God made you an individual, and he loves you, and he knows you. And we had this long conversation, and it was just part, it wasn't like sitting them down and lecturing, it's just part of going through life together and talking through life together when you're sitting, when you're praying, when you're eating, when you're walking. So much of our mind is given to anxiety because we don't meditate on Scripture. Now, I'll tell you the way I do it. You don't have to do it this way, but here's how I do it. Every morning when I read, you know, Deuteronomy 5 through 7, for example, this morning, or whatever I'm reading in my quiet times, The way I've learned to do it is I'll take one little phrase, maybe a sentence, uh, maybe sometimes a characteristics of God. I'll just take one little phrase, and I'll write it down in my little book that I have. It's not with me. It's in my office that always stays in my back pocket. It has my to-do list, my credit cards, and uh, my devotional life and my prayer list. And when I'm somewhere along the way, my mind's spinning out of control, and I'm starting to think about things I should not think about. I'll say, no, I'm going to meditate on this one phrase. The joy of the Lord is my strength, for example, was my one yesterday. It's the joy of the Lord that is my strength today. And to meditate on God's word like that, you will be amazed how much that does for your life and the life of your mind. It says, talk about all these things. And then he gives some actual instructions. And look what he says here. He talks about using them as a sign around your hand. You might have seen that. If you've seen Jewish people, they'll take a piece of leather and they'll wrap it around their wrist. And that's what they're doing. It talks about the frontlets. They would take a a little box. If you've ever seen Hasidic Jews, they have a little box that they wear when they pray the Shema. So they'll wrap this binding thing around their wrist and then they'll put this little box with Deuteronomy 6, 4 in it. And then they'll do the Shema. They'll pray in front of the Western Wailing Wall. There's even a picture of them today. And and then they'll have by the doorposts, if you ever go to a Jewish synagogue or a Jewish house, there'll be a little thing at every doorpost turned a little bit sideways. And that's the mezuzah. They're trying to fulfill what it says there in verse uh, 9. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house. And what's in the mezuzah is a little really tiny rolled up scroll with Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 written on it and put it in there. And they'll walk by and they'll touch it. But they missed the point. Because they thought it was just about going through all the actions. But Jesus says, 
In Matthew 23, they'll tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they'll lay them on people's shoulders, and they themselves are not willing to move a finger. Let me stop there, and let's just do a pharisaical check real quick. Do you tie up burdens on others? Do you lay heavy expectations on what everybody else should do, but you yourself not willing to lift a finger? Then you're a couple steps close to being a modern-day Pharisee, which we're all a couple steps close to. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries, those are the frontlets, they make them broad, and they make their fringes long, and they love the place of honor, and the feasts, and the best seats of the synagogue, and the greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi. And then later in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says, but woe to you, you scribes and you Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I want the gospel to permeate all of your compartmentalization. I want the gospel to work in your life in a way uh, that all of who you are, your view of justice, your view of faithfulness, your view of mercy has been changed because of the gospel. Now let's, let's apply it a little bit more. Let's be very honest at this moment, if we can. Most of us are okay with God if he plays in his own sandbox. Most of us are okay with God if he stays within the boundaries that we've created him to be in. God, I want you to save me from my sins, but I don't want you to tell me what I should do about my sexuality. I I want you to assuage the wrath of God, but don't you dare tell me how to spend my finances. I I want you to save me from the depths of hell, but don't begin to tell me who I have to forgive or how I use my tongue. We're quite okay with God. Almost everybody is quite okay with God if he plays within the boundaries, if we can keep him in the nice and neat compartments that we want him to stay within. As C.S. Lewis said that in The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis said, we don't want a father in heaven who we call God because the father can discipline us. What we want is a grandfather in heaven because a grandfather just gives you stuff. And they, they rarely tell you you're wrong. And they buy you all the presents. And they fill you up with candy and then send you home to be sick at your parents' house. <laughs> but look, friends, relationships can't be compartmentalized. And it's a relationship. Now, let me put it t- this way. When uh, I asked Elizabeth to marry me, I never told you all this story before. unbelievably I wrote her a song on guitar and played it for we were in this chapel that we had been at before and I played her this song on guitar that I wrote which was very that was way worse than asking her that's a very vulnerable thing to do Uh, I've since forgotten the song and I won't ever play it again and I brought out the ring box and I went to open it and she took her hands and slapped it shut and I thought this is not a good sign (laughs) and she said I want to tell you my answer before I see the ring and I said well if you're on the fence I think the ring will help (laughs) like if 
if this is going to go either way, I spent a lot of money on this sucker. So I'm quite okay with it taking you over the edge if that's what needs to happen. You know, and we didn't say, hey, I want to spend Tuesday and Thursday and the weekends with you, but could I have Monday and Wednesday to myself? Now, what do you say when you get engaged? I want to spend the rest of my life with you. No compartments. And then when you get married, what do you say? You say, for richer, for poorer, sickness and health, and plenty of want, as long as we both shall live. And when I counsel people who are struggling with their marriage, it almost always comes down to one of two things. But the first one is this. Somebody will say to somebody else in counseling, hey, I didn't sign up for this. You did. <laughs> richer or poorer, plenty or want, sickness and health. You didn't know... You know your husband was going to go mentally ill, but you signed up for it. You signed up for sickness. We didn't know y'all were going to go bankrupt, but you signed up for that. We didn't know you were going to make so much money and that you thought you upgrade your house, you can also upgrade your spouse, but you signed up for this. We saw, you signed up for it. That covenant relationship is what gives you the ability right now, no matter where you are spiritually, to run back into the everlasting arms of God. Because you might think, my sin is too much, my doubt is too much, my apathy is too much, my complacency is too much. And God says, you know what? I signed up for this. I signed up to be your God. With all of your problems, with all of your mess, I signed up for this. And because of that conversation, because of that covenant relationship, you can run to him now. You don't have to wait. You don't have to string a Bible reading plan together before you feel better about yourself. You run to him now. You enjoy him now. And you let him permeate all of who you are. Uh, let me just close, close this point. I have one more. I only have two. The next one will go quicker. But what would it look like for God to permeate your life? To break down the, the compartments. Where are the areas, in other words, that you're saying, God, I, I don't want you to touch this area. Could you let God paint the picture of what your life should be rather than you trying to paint it? In analogy, you would never, ever hire a, a professional painter to paint the portrait of your family and then say to the painter, I want you to paint me and my wife and one of my kids. I'll paint the other two kids. You would never say that because it's going to look like Rembrandt and then Picasso. You know, it, it would just be awful, It'd be horrible. You would say, paint it all, paint the whole picture. So what would it be like to give every aspect of your life over to the Lordship of Christ to let this gospel of grace actually permeate you, to quit compartmentalizing your life and to let God affect every part of who you are because he wants all of who you are. Because every part of who you are is sinful. And so he needs to get his hands of redemption on every aspect of it. To make it the beautiful painting it should be. Ask yourself that question. Because without that, you'll have what happened to a friend of mine this week. Where I said to him, you're miserable. And he said, I know I am. I said, I don't think you know how miserable you are. And he said, he said no, I know how miserable I am. I said, the problem here is you want God, but you won't let him in. 
And so now there's this civil war, gray and blue, happening in your own heart. And you got to give up. Otherwise, it's just going to be a long-term civil war. And he said, I know. It hasn't changed yet, but at least he knows it. The reason we feel so much angst sometimes in our lives is because we're not letting God do the work he wants to do in our hearts. We're compartmentalizing them, and it feels like an internal civil war because you can't serve two masters. Very quickly, the gospel provokes your complacency. Look at what it says in verse 10. Let me read this text. I haven't read it yet. Verse 10, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to his fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and you're full, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. By his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you, for the Lord your God is in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from the face of the earth. The gospel provokes your complacency. And here's what I mean by that. He says, I'm going to bring you into this land, and you're going to have ready-made cities. All these cisterns, all, all these groves, all these olive trees, all these things, and I know what's going to happen. You're going to get complacent, and you're going to forget me. Doesn't that happen in your life? When everything's going well, so often we don't ever cry out to the Lord for help when everything's going hunky-dory. At least in my life, that's what happens. And so God knows that. He knows our hearts, and he says, basically, don't get complacent. Remember what I've done for you. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he puts it this way in the sermon. He says, look... If a friend comes to your house and, and you're not there and he sees just, it's on the dining room table, he sees some bills and he sees a light bill and he takes it and he pays it, you would say, that was so kind of you. I'll pay it forward. I'll, I'll do something kind for somebody else. If, on the other hand, he takes the mortgage bill and he pays off your mortgage, you won't pay it forward. You'll try to pay it back. You'll say, this is so kind of you. Can I take you out to dinner? Let's go celebrate. That was so kind. But if he takes the IRS bill, the 10 years of back taxes and penalties that you forgot to pay, that's going to bankrupt you, and he pays for that bill, then what do you say? You say, I'm at your service. And you'd never forget him. If that person who pays your IRS bill calls you in a year and says, hey, I've got a favor. I'm broken down on the side of the road. Can you bring me some gas? You would never say, wait, who is this again? I've totally forgot who you are. You would never forget him. When we understand the riches of what Christ has done for us, we don't become people with spiritual amnesia. We become a people who remember and the gospel provokes us out of complacency. And that's what we see here at the very end of this text. Because God is jealous. Jealousy in God's economy is not sinful because he's not envious. It, just like fear. Fear can be good or bad. Uh, just like jealousy can be good or bad in the economy of God. And here God says, I want all of you. But, 
just at the end of this sermon and at the end of this text, let my wrath kind of provoke you. Look at what he says. Lest the anger of the Lord be kindled and he destroy you from the face of the earth. Now, you don't have to be scared about this, but it should provoke us out of complacency and to repentance. And here's why you don't have to be scared. John Stott said it this way, and I think this quote's on the screen. God's wrath does not mean that he's likely to fly off the handle at the most trivial provocation, still less that he loses his temper for no apparent reason at all. For there is nothing capricious or arbitrary about the holy God, nor is he ever irascible, malicious, spiteful, or vindictive. His anger is neither mysterious nor irrational. It's never unpredictable, but always predictable because it's provoked by evil and evil alone. But the beauty thing, the beauty is that we need a God whose anger can be kindled. Look, for those of you who say, I just want a God of love. No, you don't. You need a God who is love. But we need a God who's more than that, who's also just. I mean, doesn't your heart cry out right now like mine does? When you see maternity wards bombed in Ukraine? You cry out for a heart of love or a heart of justice. God, bring justice to the evil in this earth. Bring justice to the three millions that are fleeing. I'm worried about my 529 fund going down a little bit. Because I'm American. They've lost their lives and their businesses and their homes and all the equity. And they're fleeing some... Dads are never going to see their kids again once they put them on trains in Lviv. They'll never see them again. And so don't at those moments we cry, God, be the God of justice. Yes, let your anger be kindled a little bit. Provoke us out of our complacency to think we have it all together. And it's a good thing that God is jealous because here's what it means. We have a God who weeps with us, who loves us, who cries with us, who, yes, even laughs with us. We have a God who is not emotionally distant. Nobody has ever said of Jesus, he was so emotionally aloof. (laughs) He, He wasn't. He's always down in the incarnation with us, and he will be that with you. So, friends, at the end, let's just stare at the mystery of Christ. I like what it says in Luke chapter 12 and uh, 13 about preparing our hearts for his return, being provoked out of our anxiety because he will soon return. But there is a sense where I close this sermon with the mystery of God. As Leonard Broff said, seeing mystery in this perspective enables us to understand how it provokes reverence. The only possible attitude to what is supreme and final in our lives. Instead of strangling reason, it invites expansion into the mind and the heart. That's a beautiful phrase, isn't it? It invites expansion into the heart and to the mind. Permeate those things. It is not a mystery that leaves us dumb and terrified, but one that leaves us happy, singing, and giving thanks. It's not a wall placed in front of us, but a doorway through which we see the infinity of God. Mystery is like a cliff. We may not be able to scale it, but we can stand in front of it and touch it and praise its beauty. And what is the mystery? Well, it's in chapter 7. 
We didn't get to it, but let me just read. Verse 6, God says, For you are a people holy to your Lord, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people of treasured possessions out of all of the people, not because you're more in number, but because the Lord has set his love on you. Now, friends, that's the mystery, that if you meditate on that, will keep you going all day long today, that the Lord has called you his treasured possession. He loves you that much. He cares for you that much. He will protect you that much. Let that provoke you out of your spiritual complacency and let it permeate the way that you've compartmentalized God to one little section of your life. Oh, friends, he wants to do so much more. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Father, we pray now. Give us the grace not only to hear but to do. We pray in your name.